I'm John Golia. And I'm Greg Fife. And we are the, the Flight Safety, Safety Detectives. Detectives. We're just two guys who have spent most of their career with the National Transportation Safety Board investigating aircraft disasters and aviation safety issues all over the world. Yep, and this podcast is where we talk about everything from accidents, airplane technology, to the big business of aviation. We live and breathe aviation. My co-host, John, has been in the aviation business for more than 60 years. He was the first and only airframe and power plant mechanic to get a presidential appointment to the National Transportation Safety Board. And Greg is a former air safety investigator and go-team captain for the NTSB. He's investigated everything that flies worldwide since he started his career 40 years ago. And on top of that, he is a living legend of aviation inductee. So between John and myself, we have over 100 years of aviation safety experience. It's time to buckle up because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, welcome, everybody. We're here again. Greg Fife and I are here again to talk to you today about accident investigation procedures. And we are maintaining our social distancing. I'm here in sunny Massachusetts, which the sun finally came out. And Greg is 1,400 miles away, enjoying himself in the Rockies. Yeah, the weather is actually nice today, and we're supposed to get another snowstorm uh, tomorrow. So, you know, springtime in the Rockies, that's the best way to fertilize my lawn is uh, put it down and let it snow on it. So it works. So how you doing today, John? Good, good. Everything's fine here in the east. Waiting to see if they're going to open this up again at the end of the month, put everybody back to work. Have you been battling the masses at the grocery store and in the gas station? And I mean, given the fact that gas is so low right now, hell, I think that uh, we may have lines again, people trying to fill up on this cheap gas before, you know, things start opening up and the price of gas goes skyrocketing. Well, I guess it's going to go up anyway because the OPEC just announced that they're going to cut capacity quite a bit. Yeah. One of the other things I was reading today is that there is now an excess of Jet A because of all of the flights that have been canceled and the aircraft parked. So while that sounds like a, a good deal, and I'm sure that the airlines are going to hedge that fuel so that if things start to uh, to go out of control, you know, they're going to be able to keep that fuel price down. The fact that we have an excess of Jet A, which is surprising. I'm wondering if uh, we have a, an excess of 100 low-let for general aviation aircraft as well. Uh, that all should be very interesting to see how it plays out over the next six months. And, of course, there's still no flying. I spent this morning up at Bedford Hanscom Air Force Base on the, on the civilian side, and there were, up until the time I left, which was uh, 1230, there was actually no movements the entire morning for anybody. Yeah, it is strange to see an, an airport just go completely, <laughs> basically dark, if you will. I mean, I go up to the office and the same thing. Normally, the airport is buzzing with airplanes all over the ramp and people in and out of the FBO and everything. And now all you hear is crickets all day long, uh, nothing really going on. And, you know, they've been disinfecting every day, yet there's nobody in the building. So it uh, it is a strange feeling. It is uh, very strange. So. Well, I know that you want to get into acts investigation uh, process again. We've done it on a couple of the previous shows where we've talked about various aspects of um, of accident investigation. But I know you wanted to uh, to bring up several other topics today. Well, what I what I really would like to do is, based upon some of the comments we received, 
is to, to walk through the process. I mean, we did a pretty detailed walkthrough on the Brian Kobe accident and uh, right up to the point where they were talking about sending the engine back. So what I thought today is what we would talk about is a reciprocal engine or reciprocating engine and what's the process? So with an IIC, you just had an accident involving a, a, a general aviation aircraft and you suspect the problem with the, the uh, engine. The on-scene portion has just terminated. What are you doing now? You've sent the engine back. What are you doing now as the IIC? Well, if we look at it from, uh, like you said, the reciprocating engine standpoint, whether it's Continental, Lycoming, Rotax, or, or any of the other uh, manufacturers out there, one of the first things we want is to be educated. That is, we want to gather as much information from the on-scene investigation, any circumstantial evidence that we're able to gather, witness interviews and things like that, so that we have a very good fundamental understanding of some of the facts, conditions, and circumstances with regard to the operation of the airplane. If you have an engine failure that occurs at altitude, uh, the airplane's cruising along, pilot reports that the engine just failed, you know, five minutes later, comes screaming into the ground and crashes. That's a little different than being on final approach with the engine quitting to possibly even looking at the weather to see whether, in fact, the aircraft was being operated in icing conditions or maybe a high humidity issue with a carbureted engine and you possibly have carburetor ice. So you want to try and have as much information as possible so that when you do get down to the manufacturer and you do start tearing into the engine, the mentality is that you want to look for something that is mechanically wrong. You're looking for mechanical malfunctions and, and failures. You're looking to see whether or not there is anything that would have caused or contributed to that engine failure. And there's a lot of different unique signatures that the investigators look for as the teardown process occurs. And so, again, you don't want to go down there not fully armed with a lot of factual information because you may run across something during the teardown that while it, it could possibly have caused or contributed to an engine malfunction, anomaly, loss of power, or even total failure, you have to be absolutely sure that it checks against some of what witnesses may have said or some of the impact signatures you saw during the on-scene investigation. And I think the best way to really discuss this subject is to bring back our friend and colleague, Jason McCassick. Jason, we talked with him on, on a previous show where we're talking about the fact that Jason, because of his experience, worked both sides of the fence, if you will. He was a manufacturer's rep, an air safety investigator for one of the major reciprocating engine manufacturers. So he responded as a manufacturer's rep to go out, do the on-scene examination, collect the facts, conditions, and circumstances, assist the NTSB and or the FAA in the investigation. And then he was also a participant during the uh, engine teardown at the manufacturer's facility. He then worked for the FAA. So he functioned in a different role during accident investigation. He's looking at it from the oversight and enforcement 
aspect. So I think he's a, a very good person to talk to both sides because the FAA as an automatic party will be looking for different things than the manufacturer, than the NTSB. And while the FAA is interested in aviation safety and promoting safety and enhancing safety, if there is a mechanical malfunction or failure that was, or deficiency that was found, they have other responsibilities as well. So welcome, Jason, again to the show. We really appreciate you participating today. And I think that bringing both those perspectives is really going to uh, to get educate our listeners. Well, thank you very much for having me on. I sure appreciate it. And um, I look forward to having another good episode. Great. Let's start with your position as the air safety investigator who is responding to an accident scene with the NTSB in your role as a manufacturer's rep, what is it that you would be doing as soon as you show up on scene to assist the NTSB or in some cases the FAA if the NTSB has delegated that accident? Well, you know, Greg, the accident process as a whole, you know, you regardless of whether you're a component manufacturer, an engine manufacturer, airframe manufacturer, all of the individual investigators that come out for the manufacturers have a given process that they like to follow. Somewhat similar to, to the NTSB processes, each company has a slightly different slant to how they do their fact gathering, but they start the entire process off just quite similar like the NTSB. You know, you do your initial end briefing, uh, you have your discussions about safety on site, you want to talk about uh, any sort of in- initial information or witness statements, and then you actually you get out to the site. Now, whether the NTSB IIC is there with you or you have FAA oversight, the process is always the same. It's exactly the same. You're going to show up, you're going to have your initial discussions, you're going to get on site, you're going to start and do your initial site survey, you're going to go out and and try to uh, get all, you know, you start on an outer ring, you do your 360 degree pictures, you work your way in, you document, you photograph, uh, you try to find every piece of the wreckage, you're looking for all four corners. And then once once you've established all that as a group, So the NTSB, the airframe manufacturers, the propeller manufacturers, whoever's out there, once you've all established all of that and you do your initial site and get all those photos, then everybody kind of breaks down into their overall groups for what your specialty is for assistance. So my particular specialty was engines, reciprocating engines. So, you know, I would then go along and like you mentioned earlier, every single accident site is different. Every single one of them is different. It's different if you if you crash in a lake or go in the ocean or on top of a mountain or out in the middle of a desert or, you know, hard-packed sand. Every site's going to be different. So and every angle is going to be different for how they impact. So, you know, I'm going to be – I was concerned with firewall forward, trying to locate all the components, all the pieces. Sometimes uh, the components and pieces are strung out for hundreds of feet, and sometimes they're all still inside the cowling right there. You know, once you basically have the cowlings off – we just go through the process of methodically photo-documenting, taking pictures, and then visually inspecting the pieces, you know, all the way till you get down to the core portion of the engine. Depending on where the accident was, out in the middle of absolutely nowhere in the center of Nebraska, it's not a really good place to do a, a, an extremely finite inspection of the aircraft and the engine unless that's the last time you're ever going to see it. So, you know, what you like to do is you try, like to try to just take basic what you see on site, and there's some basic things that we're going to do at the site. You're going to make the determination of whether you're going to be able to move it to a local facility, to a hangar, to do a better inspection. But you're going to want to document those things. Now, being the engine guy, you know, first of all, you know, reciprocating pistons, it's really important to, to document, you know, like you mentioned earlier, 
flying into a carburetor heat. Was the carburetor heat, was the, you know, depending on the damage, was the cable, was it open or was it closed? Uh, was the throttle at full throttle or back at idle? Was the mixture at full rich or was it at idle cutoff? You know, so we're, we're going to go through and document all of those things as close as we can, the way the wreckage sits, before we go into a more thorough inspection after that. So when you would, when we look at, you know, things like cables, you know, you have to take those with a, a bit of a grain of salt because depending on how the aircraft impacted the damage, whether or not the engine stayed intact or came loose from the engine mounts and that kind of stuff, that too could change the throttle setting, the mixture setting, the prop setting, things like that. So we're trying to not only document it as it sits, but then we have to use that information and cooperate it against other evidence because if the prop shows that it was at a high you know high pitch setting but then we actually look at the propeller and it says now nope, those blades were at a low pitch setting that's the cooperation because we know that during the accident sequence things change things move things may not have been at the very end as they were during the accident sequence Absolutely. You're absolutely right. It's just the initial look at documenting. It's just that piece of information. And like we said, every single accident is going to be different. So you really don't know until you're working through the process if what you just collected is really important. So it's just the process of documenting it. And then later on as we get through, because a lot of the times when it, when an aircraft comes down and it goes into a cartwheel situation, most of the engines separate at least partially from the engine mounts and or come off completely. And when they do, it stretches the cables and all the cables get pulled in. And so it's just a documentation phase where we're just noting at the time in which we visually saw it, it exhibited this. This is the way it looked. And then we you know look at it as we move along. When you look at the engine itself, give me an idea or give the listeners an idea of what it is that you're actually looking at. I know that we pull the plugs, we try to look in the barrels, if the engine's still relatively intact, we do compression checks. Can you just explain a little bit of what you're looking for with spark plugs and, and the compressions and, and then any of the other things that we would look at at the, the accident site versus possibly then when we finally get it into a more sterile facility like the manufacturer and we start tearing into the engine itself. Sure. So when, when we're out on site, one of the things, uh, one of the key things that we're trying to determine, and again, you hit on it earlier about the different phases, about different things. It's, it's different when you have an engine that, that has a partial loss of power when you're close to the airport versus eight minutes ago when it was up at altitude and it had an issue and they came down. So what, one of the things that we're trying to determine is, is basic continuity of the systems. The systems that are on the engine itself. So, you know, there's just a, a couple of things that an engine needs actually to run. And basically all we're doing is we're just trying to confirm when we're visual look at it that we have, you know, air, ignition, and spark, and fuel. When we're having a look at the engine and we pull the spark plugs out, what we're looking for is we're, you know, like you mentioned earlier about the carb heat and flying into ice. You know, one of the first indications of carb is when the carb ice when the uh, carburetor ices up and you get carb icing, the mixtures go rich. And what you're looking for is a really dark black sooted spark plug. So if you pull out the plugs and it's really dark, that could lead you down one route for looking at potentially carburetor icing. Just another piece of evidence. We're also looking for, you know, are the spark plugs fouled out? Is there a significant amount of lead in there? Are the spark plugs broken? Was there any damage? Did anything float around in the cylinder? Has anything hit the spark plug? So once we get the spark plugs out and we've all examined them, the next step is to check for compression. 
So what we do is during the during the compression and, and rotating of the crankshaft, if you will, is if if you ha- if you have the ability and the blades are not bent, bend back to an orientation where they will strike the you know the nose bowl or the upper or lower cowling, and you can do that you know with the with the portions removed, you rotate it over by hand. So. What we do is is uh, we take the upper spark plugs out, you know, we take borescopes with us. We'll look down in the cylinders to make sure nothing's broken and nothing's fallen or nothing's gotten in there first. And then what we're going to do is, is we're going to rotate the crankshaft to ensure that we have valve train continuity from the front to the back. So basically what you do is, is by rotating the crankshaft, you're just ensuring that on the back side of the engine, the gears that are meshed, that everything is, is still connected and everything moves freely. And you're just waiting to see if the pistons come up to top dead center and that the pistons go up and down. And then we're, we put our thumb over the holes and we're looking for compression to see if we have compression in the cylinders, meaning that now the I, rings are still there. One of the things that we're concerned with, and I know I'm, I'm getting, I'm going to just torque John a little bit and tweak him and punch him a little bit virtually. And that is before we really do all of these things, if you're looking at spark plugs, you want to make sure that they are at least tight in the in the cylinders. That is, they aren't loose. We've had accidents where, because we're looking to see if there were maintenance or even manufacturing deficiencies. So before you start ripping into things out in the field or definitely in the factory, you're looking to see, I mean, if you get in there and all of a sudden you, you can remove that spark plug because it's only finger tight and not been torqued down or you get to an area where you're you're looking at the propeller and you see that maybe a couple of the bolts on the propeller are loose that in itself has to be documented because that could have been a maintenance issue it could have been that it was improperly installed could have been improperly manufactured things like that so it's a matter of documenting the the quality and of course the situation when it comes to those types of elements of the engine before we start getting into it because a lot of times and i remember and i know john you've seen this as well when you've done engine inspections where something may look normal or feel normal out at the accident site all of a sudden you get it back to the factory and it isn't what it was (laughs) and the question is why not did something change? Did somebody touch it? Did we not do a very good job on scene to document the situation? So one of the big things about accident investigation, you know, that I get asked all the time, and Jason, I know you do, and, and John as well, and that is, why does this take so long? And as you described, with how methodical we are just at the accident site, now we get it back to the factory. It gets even more detailed as far as the inspection process. Good morning, John. The ground is Canadian 920. We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. So transitioning from the field now into the teardown room at the manufacturer, tell us the process. I send the engine as the NTSB guy to uh, the manufacturer, your manufacturer, and it goes into a receiving area. Can you explain that process? But I know John is sitting there chomping at the bit because I've already tweaked him about how dare me talk about the fact that it could be a maintenance problem. So, John, you want to jump in? I just want to make sure that everybody listening understands what a boroscope is. So a boroscope is simply a tool that allows us to look inside the engine. It's an optical device. Sometimes it's it's electronic and camera, but it's very small and allows us to fit inside the spark plug hole, for example, 
or we can go down the intake manifold, or in some cases we can go in through access places or locations on the engine block itself to see what the internal conditions are before we tear something apart. So we mentioned the horoscope. That's how we do a colonoscopy on an engine. Yes. I wasn't going to get to that that level of detail, but (laughs) that's exactly what it is. In fact, the very first boroscopes that came into the airline business, like 40 years ago, it was Olympus. It came from the medical community. It was the actual boroscope that doctors used in their offices or in the hospitals to do that inspection. That's where I got my initial training. There was four of us from the airlines that went, and uh, that's where we got that training. So it's interesting to see sometimes things that are useful in other industry cross over both ways, aviation to the industry and hospitals back to aviation. So, Jason, when I'm the NTSB investigator, I sent the engine down to the manufacturing facility. Tell me what takes place as soon as that engine shows up on the receiving dock. Kind of just back up one step, Greg. Once we've made the determination that we're out in the field, we've made the determination for one reason or another, whether it's a really good candidate to be able to run and it needs a couple of parts, or whether we found something mechanical that really needs a more thorough inspection. Once we've made that determination, most of the time I removed the engine from the airframe and got it it cleaned up as much as I could, but then sometimes we had to have other people do it. What I would do is immediately call back and send in a request to send a crate uh, to ensure that we didn't have any additional secondary damage by it banging around between shipping, because we ship the engines from all over the world, to make sure that they get back intact and that they're sitting in a secured box. The manufacturers send out their own shipping containers, their own crates. That in and of itself takes time. It could take a couple of weeks for a crate to show up. Then the NTSB IC has somebody put it in the crate, secure it, and then we ship it back. That usually takes about a month to six weeks there. Once the crate arrives back at the factory, we would send an email to the NTSB IC letting them know the uh, engine has arrived, and it goes into what's called locked bonded storage. So every company has a locked facility that no one has access to, and that's why they call it bonded storage. So only the analytical managers had access, direct access to this particular part of storage where the engines would be stored. And then they would schedule with the IIC on their calendar, and then they would schedule somewhere out. Sometimes it would be, if they could get right to it, it'd be two months, then three months, and then four months. And just based on everybody's schedule, sometimes it would be four or five months before the IIC would be able to get somebody down there to oversee it. If it was going to be a run and the IIC wasn't going to show up, they could always schedule with the local flight standards district office and have an FAA inspector come over and oversee, and they would coordinate it that way. Once the determination and inspection date's been made, the engine is pulled out of bonded storage and brought into the analytical department, and that's when the inspection begins. When you look at the engine itself, I mean, of course, it uh, becomes somewhat of a gaggle because all the parties typically attend and, and that kind of thing. Now, I know that the manufacturer, of course, they, they put it into a, I would call it a clean room or a, a more sterile environment when they start the teardown process. Who's actually in control during that time? The NTSB IIC is in control at all times or the designated representative for the NTSB IIC, which would be normally an FAA inspector if they weren't there. One of the two of them are in control. It would never be the manufacturer. Ever. The manufacturer never. That's that's just not how the system works. There is always definitive direct oversight. 
Yeah, there's always been this question about the fact that, well, you're sending it back to the manufacturer. They can change things. They can break things. They can make it look like nothing's wrong and that kind of thing. But we know based, one, on the fact that the board sending an investigator does have experience, does provide that oversight. Of course, the FAA doing the same thing. There's too many checks and balances that go on for any shenanigans. Plus, it doesn't benefit manufacturer to try and do something that may skew the investigation because if the manufacturer is found to have done that, there are dire consequences when it comes to not only future accidents, but of course then the board gets really upset. And and then of course then the secondary part of that is if it's found and it's brought up during litigation, that's going to cost the manufacturer a heck of a lot more than just its reputation and money. It's really going to compromise, you know, aviation safety because we don't know, in fact, whether or not that was a true or very serious issue. So, yeah, I mean, to follow right along with that, Greg, I mean, the manufacturers of aviation components are in the business of manufacturing components for aviation. That's what they do. And they want the products and the components to be as safe as possible. They don't, they're not trying to hide something and cover something up and to do this. If there is an issue with a production on a part of, the, of, a, of a, for me, for instance, an engine, and that engine is in production today, and there's an issue with a new component that we had, you have to look at fixing the problem now. Is the problem on the line? Do we need to do testing? How do we shut down the components? Is it a component manufacturing issue? Is it a sub, you know, is it a subcomponent problem? There's a whole string of events, if you were to find something like that, that would start completely down the line. It in no way, in no way benefits the manufacturer to have any sort of shenanigans to try to do that. Because they have, you know, with aviation safety in mind, they have to fix the problem as fast as possible if one arrives. When it comes to, you know, doing an examination, can you give us an example of something that wasn't obvious out at the accident site when you were doing your documentation and it wasn't until you got into the teardown that something was found and based on that you could either use that one event or you looked back and saw other similar events that resulted in a safety enhancement? I can tell you the subservice bulletins came out. We did have an issue while I was there, and I actually personally observed it in the field, in a couple of field investigations, where we talked about we did a field continuity check where you would you would uh, rotate the crankshaft and you would check for thumb compressions and, you know, valve, you'd take the valve covers off and check for valve train continuity, making sure everything was smooth and wouldn't hit. And I did have one. I had one in the field where we turned the crankshaft and nothing else happened. The rest of the engine was, was disconnected. In that particular instance, then you start taking things, you know, part of things apart, you start taking off magnetos in the backside because the connection of the engine and all the components is in the very back. So we started taking things apart and come to find out, you know, we had had the bolts that actually hold on the uh, crankshaft gear in the back had sheared off. So we were taking a look at that. We were taking a look at the bolt shearing issue, and there was some contact there with this, with this particular starter drive adapter that was on, and there made some contact, and then we took a closer look, there was a, a change in design, and depending on what generation, you know, how old your starter drive adapter was and how new your engine was, the combination between the two, there was contact there. It was almost immediately resolved. The company, you know, found out what the issues were and worked it out and, and made sure that everybody had the right starter drive adapter assembly. So the manufacturer put out 
a service bulletin? Did the FAA get involved? Did they, uh, I know that they review these service bulletins and that kind of stuff. Did it ever go to uh, an airworthiness directive that mandated the change? And did the NTSB, during the investigation, did they write a safety recommendation that prompted the manufacturer to take these corrective actions? Yeah, as I recall, I don't think it was a safety action that went forward. As I recall, I believe it was a service bulletin. I, you know, we could we could cover that again at a later date. But what does happen is when things like that are found, it, the FAA oversight for the manufacturer that I work for went from an aircraft certification office. And so within the company, when things like that are determined and are found, it immediately goes to the continuing operational safety aspect of the company and the discussions that they have immediately with the FAA, which triggers a whole nother engineering review, discussion, issues. So when localized events are found at the factory for uh, any sorts of things, uh, control arms is one of them, like uh, the little brass control arms for the fuel meter mixing and carburetor, they no longer sell the old brass ones. It's only stainless steel ones because of people's installations. Things like that, the FAA engineering department gets involved and it becomes a very large engineering workshop, if you will, to what is the problem, how do we solve it? What is the issue? FAA comes down. Everybody works together. And then in a very clear and open process, it's worked through. And then at the very end, a product comes out. And the product would be some sort of, it could be something as simple as a service instruction. It could be a service bulletin. It could be a mandatory service bulletin. Once FAA engineering does their whole, there's a whole internal process through the FAA that they look at the impact of the entire national airspace system and aviation as a whole that potentially could have the product. And depending on how big that impact is, depends on whether they make it a mandatory airworthiness directive or it gets something less than that, a special airworthiness bulletin, or they're satisfied with the manufacturer just putting out service literature. It just depends on what the issue is. Yeah. And that's a great segue. Now put on a different hat. Now you're going to put on your FAA hat. The accident occurs, you get notified, you meet up with the NTSB and the parties out at the accident site. What are you looking for? you know, for as, as an FAA investigator at the accident site because of their, their mission statement, which is oversight and enforcement. What is it that you'll be looking at and how do you conduct that part of the investigation? So the FAA investigation is slightly different. So, you know, the FAA inspectors, depending on what kind of FAA inspector you get, they do assist and they do help with the investigations. But as an inspector kind of standing back and not actually the hands-on guy doing the physical work, the FAA has a different series of things that they're looking for, areas of responsibility, if you will. And one of the things that a lot of people don't know about the FAA inspections is basically the internal process to the FAA when they conduct an accident investigation, it's calendar and time limited. So an FAA investigation, from the time in which an inspector gets called out to go out to an accident site to when they come back and they finish the internal paperwork process, if you will, the inside documentation of that process, the inspectors only can, they only have 45 days. There's only a 45 day window for them to get all of that done. Then there's an additional 15 day review window for management. So at the 60 day window, the FAA has to be done by the way that the processes are, the internal processes, the FAA has to be done with their accident investigation within 60 days. All of us know this just doesn't happen. That's not, that's not accidents take much longer than that to work out. But so when you talk about the, the FAA's responsibility, so when I'm on site, you know, the first thing that you're looking for, let's just go through the nine, you know. So I'm, I'm looking, the number one is the performance of the FAA's facilities or its functions, air traffic control, 
en route, center, any sort of other weather reporting system, something, some other facility or function uh, that the FAA has. So then we're also looking at the performance of non-FAA-owned and operated ATC facilities and nav aids. That would be like contract towers. There are a lot of air traffic control towers that are being operated, manned, and staffed by contract employees, if you will, and not FAA employees. So we're looking at that. Number three is the airworthiness of uh, FAA-certificated aircraft. So back to the inspection that you were looking at. So we're doing a continuity check. Did the investigator that come out on site, did he find something? Is there potentially another issue that we need to raise? And so when those things are found like that, when you get to that level, if you find something, that's when you elevate it through the system and it goes back through aircraft certification. That starts a whole nother juggernaut of investigation goes on when those kinds of things are found to be vetted. We're also looking for the competency of FAA's certified airmen, air agencies, or the air carriers. You know, was the pilot, did, did the pilot know when he was eight minutes out that he had an engine failure? Was there some sort of issue from a, uh, was the airplane just get out of maintenance from a FAA oversight Part 145 repair station? Is it a 135 air carrier? And does the air carrier have adequate processes and procedures? The next one would be the adequacy of FAA aviation regulations. Was there any sort of regulation that touched on a gray area, any sort of tweak that could have been made? Did some sort of regulation potentially cause this particular issue? The adequacy of the FAA's airport certification safety standards or operations, if it happened on an airport, you know, taxi and landing, a ground incident. Adequacy of the FAA air carriers or airport security program. The medical qualification of the airman, if you opened up his bag and there's, uh, you know, 50 different uh, pill bottles in there, is there some sort of medical issue? What did he report on his medical? You know, you turn that over to CAMI. CAMI does an investigation. And was there any potential violation of uh, FAA regulations? You know, airspace violations, any sort of regulation. Was the aircraft unairworthy and the aircraft was operated in an unairworthy condition and the pilot knew? Basically, you're looking for, you know, some generalized things, knowing and willing. Did, did the operator, did the pilot in command know, and did he willingly do it? That basically when, sums up kind of what the FAA is looking for. Now, when we look at this, one of the big issues that has always come up and, and is asked all the time, whether it's a pilot or a mechanic or even an air carrier, and that is, well, the, the FAA is out there, they're doing their investigation, and all they're doing is looking for an enforcement action. We know that there's basically a separation of church and state, if you will. That is, when the FAA goes out to assist the NTSB, yes, they have these nine areas of responsibility, but they aren't collecting data necessarily to create an enforcement action. That's a whole separate process from the process of acts investigation. That is absolutely right. So to go just kind of down that line, Greg, there's two things as part of that. Let's say we found something on both ends. Let's say we found an airworthiness issue and we found an air carrier issue. The accident investigation IIC, the FAA IIC, they do not take the information. Nothing that they take from the investigation is handed over to another part of the FAA to start the enforcement action, if you will. There, there will be a, a basic discussion. This is what was found, and another team of FAA inspectors will be assigned to go look at a potential issue whether there's an issue there or not. So that's handled by that's handled by somebody else other than the IIC. Now, depending on which IIC it is and how much technical background the FAA IIC has, in my particular situation, in the accidents that I worked at the time that I was with the FAA, I actually put forward three different proposals. I found three different 
there was a few more, but I found three definitive issues that I felt should have been airworthiness bulletins. So I, you, you get back to the office, the investigation's over, you've done your nine things, you close out the accident, and then the, the inspectors then take that information and they write up a package. And you would write up, there's a real specific way, there's an internal process and a procedure, and you write up an entire accident brief, if you will. It's a, it's a very long process to kind of write up the brief, enter in all the evidence. And then that goes to another committee within aircraft engineering, aircrafts. I'm not sure exactly which office sees it now, but through aircraft certification, you'll get it back to another team and another committee who review your information, and they take it all the way up to committee level. Every single inspector that turns one in, it goes up through a, a committee, and it's all reviewed. It's researched. Additional information is sought. And depending on the potential impact, you know, the, the likelihood and the risk, so the likelihood and risk that it'll happen again, they'll make a decision based on, on that information, whether or not an immediate action of an airworthiness bulletin should happen, or they'll downgrade it a little bit and put out a special airworthiness bulletin. All the ones that I submitted all were lowered to SAIBs. Let's say a pilot survives. It's obvious from the investigation that maybe he was shooting an instrument approach. He tried to sneak down below minimums on the approach, unfortunately hit the ground you know, killed some people, destroyed the aircraft. The investigation finds that, you know, it was issues involving the pilot, maybe his qualifications, things like that. The board closes out its investigation. How then does the FAA take any of that information or how do they go out and find or enforce the violation against the pilot? The big thing here is that they're doing a, they have to go out and do a separate investigation. They aren't doing a parallel investigation for an enforcement action. Correct? Absolutely. You're absolutely right. We're going to have a basic conversation. We're going to sit down. I'm going to give them in the initial briefing. We had a pilot. He was shooting the approach. The weather was below minimums. He came down a little bit too low, struck the terrain just half a mile short of the runway. The accident occurred. That's about the length of the discussion. And then it's up to that team, that investigative team, to go back, pull the pilot records, call Cammy, get his medical, and start the whole process down of doing that internal. And they're going to go out. If the pilot lived, they're going to go do an interview. They're going to go out and interview witnesses. They're going to start their whole process over again, doing their own investigation going forward for the enforcement, if an enforcement is warranted. Sure. Now, in John's role as a member of the National Transportation Safety Board, unlike being a line investigator like I was, John, if there was an enforcement action, a lot of times, whether it was with a pilot or a mechanic that may have been involved in in an accident, John, you know, especially through the appeal process, an airman can, if the FAA comes down, takes enforcement action, can appeal to the FAA. If the FAA basically says pound sand, you know, this is going to stand. The pilot or the mechanic has another layer that they can um, appeal to, and that is the five-member board of the NTSB. And in John's role, he would review those. John, why don't you just pick it up from there? Let's say I'm a pilot. I I'm involved in an accident. They take enforcement action against me. I don't think that it's really as bad as what they say it is. Yeah, it may have been part of my fault, but not all of my fault. What is it then that my attorney is going to do to appeal to the NTSB, and then how do you handle it? Okay, so initially, 
after the administrative law judge renders his decision, if the airman still feels aggrieved, he has the ability to appeal that to the entire five-member board. And that sometimes there's only three. It takes three to make a decision. So the appeal will come up. It'll come up in a pretty large package usually with all the information from the administrative law judge hearing. And the board members will review that and make a decision from that. While I was there, we had quite a few of them. And I always dug into those very, very deeply. I wanted to see all the manuals, all the material. I wanted to understand the case at least as well as the administrative law judge, if not better. And oftentimes, I would disagree with the law judge in his outcome. Then I would make my case to uh, the other board members. Now, when board members speak to one another, they can only speak one-on-one. So I would have to go, and I did this many times, I would have to go to, uh, usually the offices were very close together. So I'd walk down the hall, hit the first one, make my case, would not get an answer right there on the spot, but I'd show the, leave the details, maybe, um, maybe even make copies of some of the material and leave it with one of my fellow board members and go around to see all five board members and explain why I think that we should go a different way than the administrative law judge or why we should back up the administrative law judge and agree with them. After that was done and the vote came in from the board members and there was no time frame on that vote, the board members could take all the time in the world until they felt comfortable with their decision. And when the board members were over with their decision and it came out, then the airman still had one more course of action to take, and he could actually appeal that decision to the district court in Washington, D.C., and it was the appellate court. That is also very expensive, so not very many of those cases went. But I'm kind of proud to say that I dissented on a number of cases. In other words, I didn't prevail with my fellow board members, and I, I lost usually three to two, and it went up to appeal. And I had a number of my dissents overturned in the district court based upon all the material that I uncovered and all my uh, factual information that I laid out maybe a little differently than some of the others had laid out. And we turned over some pretty big cases during that period of time. Well, the big thing here for the listeners is the fact that this is a very complex process. There's multiple roads to any investigation. Of course, there is the accident investigation trying to improve or enhance aviation safety through the facts, conditions, and circumstances that are found during the course of an accident investigation. The FAA has numerous areas of responsibility, continued airworthiness, of course, oversight and enforcement. And then the board serves a secondary function with regard to basically the appeal process of an airman, whether it's a pilot or a mechanic, with regard to any enforcement action. That enforcement action doesn't have to be the result of an accident. It can be the result of an incident. It can be a result of a violation. Let's say a guy blows through his airspace on a climb out and is violated. So the board serves as the as appeal process for the airman with that regard. And so when it comes to a time element, these processes are very detailed. They're very thorough. They are time consuming. 
And as Jason, you said earlier in our discussion, I mean, it could be weeks, if not months, before the engine arrives from the accident site down to the manufacturer. That in and of itself is just dead time. And then that increases the length of, of the investigations by no one's fault other than the fact of transportation and things like that. That also plays into the appeal process, Greg, because oftentimes the FAA inspectors will move quickly, as Jason mentioned. They get 60 days to, to uh, close out their paperwork. So if the FAA inspector gets assigned by management to proceed with a prosecution against an airman as a result of the accident, he's going to proceed with, with uh, his version of the facts and go forward. But sometimes at a later date, when the NTSB were to go, say, for example, into the engine teardown in what was thought to be obviously a mechanics mistake, then we find out that it was really a mechanical failure sometime later, could be as much as a year later. And uh, then at the appeal process, that information could come in and then impact on the, whether you get found guilty or innocent by the administrative law judge or by the board members. Well, I think that this discussion has been beneficial, of course, for the listeners. Uh, we've gotten a number of emails that, that have requested us to talk about the process involved in accident investigation, and I think this has been a very good overview. You, me, and John, that is Jason, we all teach accident investigation in some way, shape, or form, and <laughs> what we talked about in this episode of Flight Safety Detectives takes us typically two, three, four, even five days to teach in classes because we get into the nuts and bolts. We get into the, the thorough and methodical processes that are involved, the rules, the concerns, and of course, the decorum and the ethics that are involved in accident investigation. So I want to thank you, Jason, for uh, giving us again some other expertise, a different voice to explain the other side of the process. I'm sure we will come back and revisit this again, possibly uh, with regard to a specific accident. So we'll look forward to having you back on the show. And John, as always, my colleague, partner in crime and Mr. Encyclopedia of Aviation, I appreciate your input and insight from the, the safety board, the management side, if you will the board member, because that's an important point that a lot of people don't understand as to all of the things that the safety board does other than just go out and kick tin. So I think that this was a, a very good discussion. Yes, Greg, I think it was. And Jason, just remember, no good deed goes unpunished. We've also dragged you into two two of these uh, podcasts already, and, and uh, I can think of a third one in the not-too-distant future. So... Be careful what you're volunteer well, thank for. Thank you very much, gentlemen, for having me on. I sure appreciate it. And if there's anything else I can do to help you guys in the future, please feel free to give me a call. No, don't yeah, worry. You shouldn't say that because <laughs> you'll be you'll be on the other end of the phone. Trust me. <laughs> That's okay. No big deal. Excellent. Well, John, I think that wraps us up for this episode of Flight Safety Detectives. It's always good to see you. I'm looking forward to getting out of quarantine so that we can be together. And um, really, we can't do much with our YouTube video podcast that we've been talking about doing because you and I can't be together right now. So I think uh, at some point we're going to have to <laughs> become more technologically advanced so that we can put together our video portion of our podcast. But for right now, 
I will get to look at you via Zoom 1,400 miles away, and uh, we can continue to have some of these good discussions. So for those listening, we always appreciate the fact that you've uh, provided us topics to address, and hopefully this gave you a, a bit of oversight and, and understanding of what the board does. It's the process along with the FAA and a manufacturer. Again, keep those thoughts coming. You can always contact us through uh, email at flight safety detectives with an S on the end at gmail.com. We always love to hear the feedback, good, bad, or indifferent. Your suggested ideas, we'll try to hit them in a show and address those things. And again, you can give us your thoughts on anything. That's what this show is all about, is just trying to bring awareness to a variety of different subjects. John and I are going to get back into uh, the accident investigation and dissecting some accidents. We kind of took a little bit of time off to address some of the more current issues going on with the coronavirus and the impact it's had on aviation. So we wanted to address those as a uh, a current topic. But now we're going to start filtering back into uh, doing what we originally started, and that is dissecting accidents, doing the lessons learned. So again, thank you all very much for listening. Thanks for your input. And we look forward to future podcasts and talking about those subjects that you want to hear about. So with that, my friend, I'll leave you with the last word before I sign us off. All right. Thank everyone for listening and fly safe, travel safe, be safe. And John, eventually we will both be flying safe. So take care until the next episode. Fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to FlightSafetyDetectives.com or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at PAMA.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.